Please stand in honor of God's holy and inerrant word. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light for our path. So this morning, as we sit under the preaching of your word, would you illuminate, would you illuminate it for us so that we would know what you would have us do with our lives? Pour out your spirit and fill us anew with joy as we hear from your word. May Christ and his gospel be lifted high for all the world to see through us, through the way we live and through the way we work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I still remember uh, one reason my dad gave me back in the day for why he thought that I should attend medical school. It'd be so hard, it'd be so challenging that by the time you get through it, I, I'd basically be able, to get, be able to handle anything, anything that came my way. Now, I don't know about anything. Um, that was definitely before I started having kids. But I do know one thing. After seven years of intense training, months and months of endless rotations, countless uh, cycles of upper-level residents and attending physicians, I know what it's like to work with the best and the worst of bosses. I, I don't know, I, I'm not saying that I know how to work well with the best and the worst of bosses, but I know what it's like. And for those of you in school, you know what it's like to have a professor or a teacher that you like or you dislike. I mean, you like or dislike them for a reason, right? At your workplace, what if you had a boss who takes credit every time you put in all that hard work and effort and never acknowledges you. Maybe she just makes it seem like she did it all herself. Or what if you had a boss who micromanages every little thing you do and just keeps track of every detail of your working life? What if you have a boss who tells you to do things one way, but then turns around and does things a completely different way himself? And what if your boss is is just plain mean. These are real-life situations that, that many of us here in this room face every single day. Now, it's one thing to work for a boss who's reasonable, who's easy to get along with, it gives you the kinds of respect that you think you deserve, but it's a completely different thing to work for a boss who isn't like that. Well, our passage this morning tells us to respect and to honor those in authority in our workplaces, to keep doing good work, to not slack off even when you feel like you're being mistreated. What's it gonna take to pull something off like that? Now, before we jump into this text, I wanna give you some context because we're here reading about bond servants and masters and that's kind of a little strange to our 21st century ears. If you're reading in the NIV or other English translations, you'll read slaves 
and masters. You might be here this morning, and you're still on the fence about Christianity, and you might be thinking to yourself, why would I ever want to be part of a religion that still talks about slaves and masters? I mean, that, that's just so outdated. That's what makes the Bible so unbelievable. I mean, why doesn't the Bible just outright condemn slavery? That's a good question. Many good questions. And to all the Christians here in this room right now, how would you respond to something like that? Does the Bible really condemn slavery? How do you deal with passages like this without resorting to the, well, I guess it's just about employers and employees. That's, that's, that's one way to answer it, but it probably isn't sufficient. It's not an easy question to ask, and it's not an easy question to answer. So before we jump into this text, I want to give you guys just and spend just a few minutes um, unpacking this idea of bond servants and masters before we try to apply it to ourselves here in the 21st century. So the word for bond servant in the Greek is doulos, uh, which can also mean servant or slave, and it's used 126 times in the New Testament. Now, the first thing you got to know is that in the New Testament, slavery was so ingrained into society that in early Christianity, listen to this, one out of every two persons was a slave. You hear that? In New Testament times, one out of every two persons was a slave. So assuming that the early church somewhat mirrored the conditions, the social conditions of the society around it, it was probably a normal thing to see Christian slaves, Christian bondservants sitting right next to their Christian masters, worshiping together in the same local congregation week after week. They were brothers. They were sisters in Christ. So knowing this, I think it makes a little bit more sense now that you, read, you don't read a lot about employers and you don't read employer-employee kind of relationship in the Scripture. You actually read a lot about bondservants and masters in Scripture. And that you might get a little bit more why Paul would write so much to these two groups of people in the New Testament. Now, the second thing you got to know is that whenever you read this slave-master relationship in the New Testament, don't automatically connect that with the uh, transatlantic slave trading that took place between the 16th and 19th centuries. It's sad but true that Christians in the American South use passages just like the one we're studying this morning to justify enslaving four million African slaves for their economic gain. But a doulos, a bondservant in the New Testament, it describes someone who, who, yes, was bound to serve his master for a, a limited or specific period of time, but he's also someone who could own property, achieve social uh, advancement, and even be released or purchase his own freedom. Now, that's way different than the racialized slave trade that, that took place where innocent Africans were turned into property and sold at the hands of greedy businessmen. And yes, the Bible, it does condemn slavery. It condemns it outright. Just five chapters before where we're studying in 1 Timothy, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, you can look there if you want, in a long list of things that are considered lawless and disobedient to God, Paul actually lists, he calls out those who are enslavers, those who enslave men as property. So the Bible does condemn slavery outright, so don't, 
don't miss that. If you ever get that kind of question, there's your trivia answer in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. So verses like the one we're studying this morning, along with several others um, in Scripture that talk about the human worth and dignity of every human being because they're made in the image of God, eventually compelled men like William Wilberforce to fight for the abolition of the slave trade among Western nations. And we should thank God for that. All right, so with all that in mind, I want you to, I want to look at 1 Timothy 6, not with the cultural lens of slave trade or the African slave trade, but I want you to have the mindset of the Apostle Paul and the early Christians and, and that they would have been thinking about and seeing society in. I do think it is still legit to draw principles for ourselves from a passage like this because it basically is talking about honoring people who God has placed above us in authority at a place of work. So here's the question. What's it going to take to show respect and to show honor to your boss who may or may not be worthy of such a respect? And if you're a student, you could, in your minds, just hear this sermon as your professors or your teachers, especially the ones that you find hard to get along with, all for the glory of God. I have three points, and you can follow along in your outlines that, that's printed in your bulletin. First, uh, the call to honor your earthly master is a call to embrace your gospel-rooted identity. Now, I get this from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Look down there with me. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at specific ways that the Apostle Paul calls the Ephesian church under young Timothy um, to give honor to specific groups of people. Remember, this is all about the rightly ordered church. And so in, in chapter, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, we read, honor widows who are truly widows. In chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And now here in, in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So you see the pattern here. Honor the widows, honor. The rule, uh, elders who rule well, double honor. And now here, the masters by their bondservants as all honor, give them all honor. So honor, double honor, all honor. That's how Paul ties this all together. You might be wondering here, well, I get the, the honor of church widows. I get the honor of church elders, but what's up with the slave bondservant master honoring here? It kind of is out of place. But commentators actually suggest that um, there may have been some conflict going on between Christian slaves and their masters back then. Think about it. Slaves, masters, slaves, uh, in New Testament times, they've heard the gospel for the first time. They just become Christians, and now they're beginning to understand their newfound identity in Christ, that they're not just slaves like society sees them, but they're free men in Christ. They're, they're free men in Christ, like it says in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-two, And this new identity, this newfound freedom may have caused some of these Christian bondservants to also feel the freedom to 
disregard some of the social rules, the social expectations of bond servants and masters, both inside and outside of the church. And so Paul probably felt the need to speak into this kind of situation before things got out of hand. He wanted to make sure the church was rightly ordered. But I think it's helpful to pause and think about the importance of identity here before we move on. These bond servants understood themselves to be freed men in Christ because they were now under the lordship of Christ. They understood themselves to be on the same level as every human being simply because they were made in the image of God. But think about this. Even for us today, as Christians, if you're a Christian here, you're not under the bonds of slavery. We're still to consider ourselves doulos, bondservant of Christ. In Scripture, the Apostle Paul, James, Peter, and Jude, each of them refers to himself as a servant, a doulos of Christ. They were free men. And so the point is this, let your identity in Christ motivate the way you work. Let your identity in Christ, your allegiance rooted in Jesus Christ as your ultimate Lord and Master, motivate how you work. One author puts it this way, who you work for is more important than what you do. Who you work for is more important than what you do. Now, don't get me wrong, what you do is important, but I think it takes second place, maybe even third, to who you work for. Now, the who in this case is not merely your direct supervisor, it's not your CEO. The who in this case, if you're a Christian, is ultimately Jesus Christ. And so that changes everything. Because now, instead of clocking in, clocking out, every day being a people pleaser, that Bible calls it eye service, we're free to do good work as for the Lord and not for men. We're free to show honor and respect to bosses, whether good or bad, in our sight, because we're working out of a sincerity of heart. We're, we're doing it out of a pleasing of God. You know, some of my hardest nights in my life that I can recall were um, working as a physician, a resident physician, on call at night at the hospital. I, I remember thinking to myself sometimes um, that I think this is as close to slavery as I will ever feel. Now, that's slavery to the hospital, but I, I do feel like they're just trying to get as many hours out of me as they can. I'd imagine a hospital CEO sitting in his nice, comfortable chair in a nice, comfortable room, and I would, I would take that image, compare it to the fact that here I was, tired, exhausted from the shift before, walking, just slowly and, and, and exhausted from into the hospital to start yet another night the only thing that kept me from completely losing heart those days was the thought that, yes, I was, I was working for this upper level. Yes, I was working for this attending physician, maybe even that CEO. But more than that, I was serving Jesus. He was the ultimate reason I could push through this night to do good work, to be the best physician that I could be. I used to pray this prayer while walking from my car in the parking lot 
to the hospital. God, my heart is yours. Lord, I'm serving you. You're my Lord and master. So help me to do good work because in and of myself, I don't want to do this. This is for you. And so with that, with that mindset, I walk into the hospital, take a seat, get ready for the next night. And you know what? That was the kind of mindset that helped carry me through those long nights, especially if I had a really rough night or a really bad boss. You know, my gut instinct in that moment may have been to do a pretty shabby job as a little passive-aggressive way to get back at my boss, but my desire to honor Jesus more than anything else kept me wanting to do my job with excellence. So Christian, how's this going to work out for you? Maybe you're in a situation right now where your boss is just completely unbearable. You might be thinking, Jonathan, you, you don't know what kind of horrors my boss puts me through. You're probably right. I don't. But God calls all who are under a yoke as bondservants to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Not just the nice ones, but the mean ones. Not just the ones who communicate real clearly their expectations to you, but the ones who don't. And not just the ones who are reasonable, but the ones who aren't. And so look to this challenge as a way to turn your job into an act of worship. Knowing that God and the riches of being in a relationship with him are yours in the gospel for all eternity. So work hard. Show honor, respect to your boss through your tone of voice, your body language, your responsiveness to emails, to texts, to calls, to requests, and do this, remembering that your call is ultimately rooted in your gospel identity. Now, second, your call to honor your earthly master is a call to embrace your role as a gospel-displaying witness. Let's go back to verse 1. Look down there with me. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may, be, may not be reviled. As Paul's writing this command, he's got one thing and one thing only in mind. The name of God and the public perception of the gospel. Now, the idea of being under a yoke here is, uh, and it implies, it implies that bond servants were actually and probably under a lot of stress. Their working conditions were really harsh. It was not easy being a bond servant, and Paul's acknowledging that here. And now you might be wondering, just sitting here um, and reading this, wh why doesn't Paul just straight up call out and advocate for the abolition of slavery right here, right now? Why all this talk about submitting to such a social system that caused so much inequality? Good question. Now, scholars, um, men way smarter than me, um, they believe that even though the idea of treating humans like property was displeasing to God, we got that from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it just was not the right time, they believe, to overturn such a deeply rooted system. It was so ingrained in society. Doing so 
If Paul did that, it probably would have led to a lot of bloodshed and violence. And so instead, Paul, God used Paul and other New Testament authors to put theological truths into writing that would eventually pave the way for the abolition of slavery, but not this time. In the meantime, it was actually uh, more conducive for the gospel and the spread of the gospel to call these bondservants to submit, to stay, and to serve freely their masters out of a love for Jesus. Let me say it a different way. Paul must have felt that a call for a direct revolution against the social structures of his day would have brought shame to the name of God, making it even harder for the gospel to advance. That was his thought process. And so, what does all this mean for us today? Listen to this. Not only is who you work for more important than what you do, but the way you work is more important than what you do. The way you work is more important than what you do. Because the way you work, in this case how you relate to your boss in a public workspace, can actually help or hinder the progress of the gospel in our city. Others around you see what you do. Whether you like it or not, they are judging the credibility of the Christian faith by the way you react to criticism, the way you gossip or hold your tongue towards your boss or towards other coworkers, or the way you handle stress in a hostile environment. Tim Keller writes this, excellence in work is a critical means for gaining credibility for our faith. If our work is shoddy, our verbal witness only leads listeners to despise our beliefs. And excellence in this case, here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, has to do with the way we submit and show honor to those in positions of authority over us. Many of you still remember Jesslyn Lin, um, who was a member of our church until pretty recently when her and her family moved to Austin. I did get her to use, I get, did get her, to, her permission to use her as an illustration, by the way. Now, now Jesslyn, if you don't know her, Jesslyn is one of those doctors who I have looked up to all, all the way up from my training in medical school because of the way that she presents herself, because of the way she interacts with others, whether in, in the church setting or professionally, and, and by the way she takes her work seriously as a physician. I've never heard her once complain about her boss, her work environment, never heard her once gossip about other coworkers or anyone else in, in, in the church setting. And she was also one of the doctors who trained me when I first got out of residency and started working in a diabetes clinic. Now, a couple years ago, our company started to um, have financial problems, and she, one day she was abruptly let go. Probably part of the first wave of employees that the company had to start um, letting employees go uh, to cut down on costs. But what stood out to me was the way she handled this. I still remember on the last day of work, she sent an email out to all the employees at the company telling them how much it was a joy to work at this company. And she only wished that she could spend more time with each of them, getting to know them more. Justin graciously left this company without saying one bad thing about the CEO, about the company culture, about her direct supervisors. And that, combined with her strong work ethic, I believe, made the gospel shine. This is what Christ can do 
for a person who has dedicated herself to a company and worked diligently and worked hard and out of nowhere was let go. That's what Christ can do. Now, imagine with me, hypothetically, of course, this is definitely not what happened. Imagine with me if Jesslyn, on finding out she was let go, stormed out of the office and started talking trash about her boss or about the company. And how do you think that would affect her credibility, her gospel witness, if she just perhaps try to have dinner with a coworker or a staff member one day, just try to reach out and maybe one day share the gospel. How would it affect my witness still at the office as a Christian trying to reach out to other staff members? Brothers and sisters, our allegiance to Christ has got to make a difference in the way we work so that others, when they see and look into our lives, are attracted to the gospel. At this point, you might be thinking, that makes sense, Jonathan. You, you make really good points. But where am I going to get that strength? Where am I going to get that motivation to stand up under the pressure of a hostile work environment and maybe my boss's demands are just genuinely crushing to the point I'm about to break? Now, don't hear me saying that it's wrong to ever leave a bad work situation. That's totally not what I'm trying to say. Paul actually calls and allows for bondservants that if they can gain freedom, to do so. He does that in 1 Corinthians 7.21. But if you have to stay, and you're convinced that the Lord is not leading you away from your current work situation, let me encourage you to just keep preaching the gospel to yourself. And to let those truths strengthen your resolve to stay. Let me tell you what I mean. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle Paul calls Christian servants to be subject to their masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but to those who are unjust. And he reminds us that when we endure suffering, even after doing the best, the absolute best work we can, for our earthly masters, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? Because this is exactly what Christ did for us. From the beginning, we were meant to live in a harmony with God. He was to be our God. We were to be his people. But sin, evidenced by the rebellious will that bucks against his authority in our lives, has broken God's original intention of a harmonious relationship with him. None of us in and of ourselves has what it takes to restore this relationship with him, but the message of Christianity is good news for this reason. You see, God became flesh through the person of Jesus Christ. Like a good and faithful worker, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Unlike when we face criticism from our bosses, Christ, when he was insulted and mocked, did not return a harsh word. He suffered also in hostile and antagonistic environments, and yet he didn't threaten back. He continued entrusting himself to his God. The gospel tells us that Christ bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ worked hard for your salvation. 
so that you would not have to work at all to gain it. Now, I'm not trying to get you guys to double down on your efforts to, to, uh, to simply work harder at being a better employee. No, the point I'm trying to make here is that the power for every good change, even in the workplace, has got to come first from belief in this gospel. And I want to invite those of you here this morning who still are not yet decided about Christianity to take that one more step of faith to repent of your sins, to repent of your rebellion, to repent of the rejection of his authority of your life and make him Lord. Believe in this gospel. Christ died for you. Christ died for me so that we would live for him. This is the gospel that we are trying to lift up high, not only by telling people verbally at work, but through the actual way we work. So, to all the Christians here in this room who are struggling to endure suffering and harsh environments at work, and you might even have just a difficult boss, keep looking to Christ. Keep looking to Christ as your example. Fix your eyes on him and the sufferings he went through on the cross. And as you work every moment of it, seek his help for, for everything. So now the call to honor your earthly master is not only first to a call to embrace your gospel-rooted identity and second, a call to embrace your gospel-displaying witness, but also third, it's a call to embrace your gospel-centered service. So far, we've seen two good reasons to stay at it, to continue doing good work, to press harder and harder to work for that boss, whether good or bad. The first is because you're ultimately serving and working for King Jesus. The second is because the way you work can either help or hinder your gospel witness in the city. And third, there's another reason to handle it. You might not have caught this from the verse, but think about this. Let's say your work conditions are great. You love your job. Your boss might even be a Christian. Even then, Scripture tells us to honor and respect your boss by simply doing good work because work itself was ordained by God from the beginning of time. It's a way of serving and blessing humanity and helping society flourish. Work is good in and of itself. It's not just one thing to serve Jesus and that's why you're doing your work. It's not just because you want to share the gospel and that's why you do good work. Those are all important those are my first two points. But there is another point that work in and of itself is service to your fellow man. So in this particular situation, that's what Paul's trying to get at here in verse 2. Look, look down there with me. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit from, by their good service are believers and beloved. So in this particular situation, we have Christian bond servants working for Christian masters. People I'd imagine who'd be sitting just like we are here today uh, next to each other, worshiping Jesus week in and week out in the same congregation. Now these Christian bond servants probably got it a little wrong that thinking that now that I'm equal to my master in Christ, that 
the usual rules at work no longer apply to me. But look at what Paul says instead. He tells these bondservants to work even harder, to serve all the better, precisely because they and their masters were now fellow believers in Christ. Now, this term good service in verse 2 can also be translated as act of kindness. So if you read it this way, Christian masters are actually to see the labors of their Christian bondservants as labors of love, as acts of kindness. So what does all this have to do with us? I think it's um, one thing this should cause us to do and, and is just to pause and glory in the power of the gospel to unite people from all different kinds of backgrounds together in worship of him in the same congregations and in the universal church. People who would normally not run in the same circles because they just, that's just not how society works, they sit, you guys sit next to each other in these very pews and worship the living God together week after week after week. I still remember one point in my small group where a professor, a dental professor at the UT Dental School was present as well as one of his students, dental students. And I would say outside of the church setting, the student would probably have real, very little interaction personally with this professor. But at the church and in our small group, they were fellow believers of Christ and saw each other as people they could turn to for prayer and encouragement. The gospel brings bondservants and uh, masters back in the day, employees, employers, students, professors, and teachers in our day. They bring all of us together. Why? Because there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is no male or female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. And so let's treat each other like family and serve and work and do good work for one another simply because of our unity in Christ. So if you work for a Christian boss, thank God for that. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that just because you do, the rules don't apply to me or the, the office protocols we could just ignore now that you work for a fellow believer. No, instead, serve all the better because those who benefit by your good service are believers and beloved. So, what's it going to take? What's it going to take to honor and respect your boss who may or may not be worthy of such respect? All to the glory of God. It's going to take a wholehearted embrace of the call to your gospel identity, your gospel displaying witness, and your gospel-centered service. Let the fact that you are working for King Jesus and suffering like him if you have to empower you to serve with all your heart like King Jesus. Also that the gospel for such a king, the gospel of such a king would be lifted up high for all the world to see that he is worthy of every square inch of our allegiance. Let's pray. 
Father, indeed, you are worthy of every square inch of our allegiance. You're the Lord and you're the master of our lives. And so help us take these truths from your word and apply them to our lives, to our schools, to our workplaces, so that others might look into our lives and be attracted to your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.